Well, good morning, Trinity. Pleasure to see all of you. For those who don't know, my name is Isaac Farrell. I'm the pastor here. And I ask you to turn your attention to the Gospel of Mark. Last week, Jesus showed himself as the Good Shepherd. And he was caring for the lost sheep in the midst of the 5,000. He was a better Moses, as we saw, leading the people into a desolate land, feeding them in the role of God, not from manna from heaven, but rather out of his hand. And I wondered, actually, after I preached that sermon, whether or not I should have included the disciples in that category of lost sheep. Because I did. I, I put them in there and said, they're lost sheep. They're amidst that whole crowd. They don't understand what's going on. But at the same time, the, Jesus, the disciples have been with Jesus for a very long time. They've seen a number of miracles. They've heard Jesus' teaching. They've even been entrusted to go teach and heal, as we saw last chapter. But then, then we read this chapter. Then we read our section here of Jesus walking on water. And I couldn't help but decide, yes, the disciples are definitely lost. Mark describes the men closest to Jesus, the men who have been traveling around with him, sleeping next to him, talking to him, as having hard hearts. That they don't understand anything that has happened in front of their eyes. One commentator described the next chapter and a half of the Gospel of Mark as Mark's great polemic against the disciples. It's going to end in chapter 8 when Jesus finally chastises the disciples, saying, how do you not understand any of this? Anything that you've seen, you still don't get it. And then Peter finally identifies who Jesus is right in the middle of chapter 8. It's going to be a difficult couple sermons for the disciples when we get there. It's also going to be difficult for all of us who fail to truly understand who Jesus Christ is and what's right in front of us. And it's actually that idea that I want to play with a little bit this morning. What is it that causes us to not see what's right in front of our face? So since I was a teenager, and probably even before that, I've had what is called selective blindness. The times when I really can't see anything that's right in front of my face, and I really don't know what it is. It's just gone. Every parent and spouse probably actually knows what I'm talking about right here. I'm taking it very seriously, but it's kind of funny. I'm 15 years old. My mom says, hey, Isaac, go and grab the masking tape in the closet. I'm doing something. I'm busy. My hands are busy. I can't deal with it. She's my mom. She has every right to go and command me off the couch to go do something, go pick up something. She bore me. It makes sense. So I get up off the couch, mumbling and grumbling about having to get off the couch. I walk to the closet. I stare into the closet. I turn the light on. I lift up the junk piles. I push over the towels. I move those little baskets with whatever is in there. I stare into the closet further. I move the light bulbs and the screws out of the way. I cannot, for the life of me, find the masking tape. I call back to my mom. I say, hey, Mom, where is the masking tape? And she says, calmly, it's in the hall closet. 
And I say, I'm looking in the hall closets. And she says, it's on the third shelf, right by the light bulbs. And I say, I'm looking at the light bulbs, and they're not there. I'm getting frustrated. She is a saint who hasn't quite gotten frustrated enough. And she's starting to think that I might be an idiot. It's entirely possible. So she stops what she's doing. She comes over to the closet and almost out of thin air, she pulls the masking tape that's right there on the third shelf by the light bulbs. And I could not see it. As I said, I have selective blindness. No doctor will see me to fix it. I don't know what to do about it. I think it might be genetic. My daughter is constantly asking for her water bottle, even though it's right there in front of her feet, and she doesn't see it. What I'm getting at is that all of you could really pray for Jessica, because she's struggling with some selectively blind people in her house. All kidding aside, really. I don't think that the disciples are selectively blind. I think that they are purposefully, obstinately blind to what's in front of them. It's a shocking reality, staring at them in the face in our passage. The closet door is open, the masking tape is right in front of them, the light is on, and they cannot, for the life of them, see what's in front of them. What is their problem? What is causing this disconnect to seeing what's happening? Well, thankfully, Mark tells us actually what is going on. They've hardened their hearts. They don't understand and they don't want to understand. And oddly, we could really start and end with that idea. A number of sermons I listened to this week gave just that. A grim picture of the disciples and nothing more. But that's an unfulfilled sermon. If the disciples are this hard-hearted, are they that blind, like me staring into a closet not seeing it, well then the guy walking on the water... He is the great contrast to them. He is the one who shines the light to make the scales come off their eyes. He is the one who opens their eyes. And that's what we'll see in our passage this morning, those two sides. I'm not going to guarantee the disciples understood, because they don't at the end of our passage. But the promise of Jesus Christ before us is one who softens hardens hearts. He's the one who opens the eyes of the blind. But we have to get there. Let's begin then with the hardened hearts. And our passage picks up, as Pat said, right where we left off last week. The meal has been served, people ate and they were satisfied. The feeding of the 5,000 has accomplished. The disciples gathered 12 baskets of food left over. And Jesus immediately sends them away. He says, that's enough. I wanted you to rest. Now it's time to go rest. Get in the boat and go. I'll deal with the people. Now while in the boat, the people, or the disciples, struggle to make any headway. Wind's against them, so they're not using the sail. Instead, they're rowing. But the wind is so strong that the rowing isn't really doing much. It can't make much progress. Mark jumps ahead a few hours. The disciples are still at it. The time's now fourth watch. Fourth watch is the last watch of the night, somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. 
They've been rowing for hours and still nothing, so much for getting that rest that they so desperately wanted. They're maybe halfway to their destination, stuck in the middle of a sea with no way forward. There's waves and winds all around them, maybe a little worried. That's when we get this miraculous event, Jesus walking on the water. We get the waters calming, we get the wind stopping when he joins the disciples. We'll come back to that and talk about those details. We will. But now, we're dealing with these disciples. Because the disciples' first reaction of seeing someone walking on the water is fear. And that is perfectly reasonable. It's not something they've seen before. It's not something we've seen before. It's a shocking thing. It's not normal to see a man walking on water, let alone a very choppy and stormy sea with wind pushing the waves back and forth. And they think it's a ghost or a spirit, as though they've suddenly traveled down the river Styx, about ready to enter into the underworld. But Jesus calls out to them, identifying himself. And then it's verse 51. Jesus gets in the boat, the wind ceases, the sea settles, and the disciples were astounded. They were astounded by what they had just seen. Mark's details here are very important. You can look. Look at the passage. Don't look at me. You can look right there. In the bulletin. End of verse 51 and verse 52. They were utterly astounded and they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. See, the disciples' astonishment did not come because it's so crazy and interesting. Their astonishment came from their lack of understanding. They didn't understand how Jesus did any of this. They didn't understand about the loaves of bread multiplied. And it leads to their hearts being hardened. What really has happened to these disciples? How did they move so quickly from teaching, healing, and casting out demons into hardening their hearts? It seems time and sin has made a fool of them. Because they fail to see what has happened right in front of their face time and again. They fail to understand the man now standing in front of them in the boat. Two chapters ago, they saw Jesus sleeping in a dangerous storm. They woke him up because they were afraid for their lives. Jesus stands up and he declares to the storm, be quiet. And it quiets down. They've seen Jesus heal the blind and the lame. These disciples have seen a young girl brought back from the dead by Jesus. They just saw him multiply bread and fish to feed more than they could ever imagine. They probably still have the 12 baskets with them. They're sitting there in the boat. Just look at the baskets, disciples. Don't you see? Don't you understand? No. They don't. And so they're astounded. They don't understand what's going on. They don't see. Jesus is not some normal teacher. He's not some above-average rabbi or scribe. He is far greater. He's the creator of all things. He's the one here in front of you. How many more miracles and teachings do you need to see and hear to fully understand? That's a tough question. It's a tough question to think about. How many more? How many more times do I need to be astounded to really understand it? It's the hard hearts. Let's talk about this hard heart idea. Who 
has hardened their hearts in the Bible. How many stories do you remember by this concept about hard hearts? If you start in Mark, we can go back just a few chapters. Mark described the Pharisees and scribes as having hard hearts in chapter 3 because they couldn't understand about Jesus and the withered hand. Paul, Paul describes the Jews with hardened hearts, unwilling to see the truth of the gospel. He says in 2 Corinthians that their head is behind a veil, unable to see the truth. Everything is a shadow to them. And then there's the big one. Romans 9 and Exodus 14. Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the original hard-hearted, unwilling to let Israelites flee from Egypt. So what happened? What happened with Pharaoh? He got halfway through the Red Sea after chasing the Israelites, after they had walked across dry land, and as he was halfway through the sea, the waves crashed down. The Red Sea destroyed him and his army. So where are the disciples right now? Well, they're about halfway through the sea while wind and waves are crashing all around them. I think that's Mark's description of the disciples. They are Pharaoh. They have seen all the works of God and they still do not understand. They do not accept it. Pharaoh had nine plagues before the Israelites were set free and then the, goat, the Holy Spirit came upon them and killed the firstborn, right? That's the tenth plague. But he had hardened his heart multiple times before that. And then he sent them free. And yet he still came back around to chase after them. The disciples, the disciples have seen more than nine miracles. We don't have all of them listed, but there are more than nine miracles that have occurred. More than ten. And they still hardened their hearts. They're still failing to see the same problem. They have it. They are the arch enemy of the Israelite people. Pharaoh was the height. He was the one that they all accused of. Like, you are like Pharaoh. You are the one who enslaved us. That's what they thought of it. And now Mark is saying the ones closest to Jesus Christ are Pharaoh-like. Standing side by side with him. And they don't even realize the waves are about to crash down upon them. Now, if you don't see yourself as these disciples, you're missing it. If you don't see it, if you don't see yourself right there, if you think and you look at these men and you go, I would have figured it out. Nine to ten miracles, I could have easily gone like, well, this guy's probably a pretty big deal. He just brought somebody back to death, back from the life. Back from dead to life. That was a troubling one. You think you would have figured it out. You think you, if only I would have saw as much as they saw. If only I really understood. You really just don't get it. You don't really realize how truly blind we all are. You are like me looking into a lid closet, searching for the masking tape, and it's still not there in front of your eyes. Your heart is as hard as these disciples here. Your inability to see the truth is like Pharaoh in Egypt. You may deny it. It's okay. We all do. We all struggle to really grasp the depth of our sin and the depth of our inability to see it. Convince yourself you're not as foolish or as blind as other people. So you start comparing yourself. Think, well, I'm not as bad as that guy, so at least it's okay. But each morning we wake up 
and our heart is determined to sin. Our eyes are determined to not see the truth of God before us. We as a people are selfish, prideful, and uninterested in God. I'm not just talking about the world outside of this church here, as though we're some special group who's gathering on Sunday morning. No, no, no. I mean, here in this room, the Bible tells us that the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. It says that our mouths are open graves. It tells us we all pursue evil. No one is righteous. You may think I'm overplaying my hand here, but I really ask yourself, think about what you do in a day. What's your day-to-day life look like? You wake up and you think, well, I'll go work hard. I'll get a paycheck. I'll feed my family. I'll be a good spouse or a son or a daughter. I'll go to school. I'll do well in school. I'll be nice to people. I'll let people in on the highway. I'll do the little wave. Come on. It's okay. Say hi to my neighbors. Hi, Bob. One of my neighbors' name is Bob, so I can say that. Maybe you help them bring their trash to the end. Maybe you're starting to think like, okay, I can go help them rake their leaves. They're starting to fall. Maybe one day a week you go and you spend some time at a nonprofit. You serve people. You give money to them. You give food to them. You invite people over for dinner. You think, yes, this is it. People in this community know me and they like me. They respect me and I like me because of what I've done. I mean, that all sounds pretty good. Sounds like a nice person. I would love to meet them. Not one mention of God, though. That whole day. Not one mention of God. No relationship that looks upward. The Bible calls our works filthy rags. All that time. Nothing. We're described as only making small steps in holiness. Our hearts are so hard we don't even realize it. Even when we're nice and good and kind to people around us, it's often selfish because we want people to know us, because we want the world to think we're good, we're nice people, why don't you like me? I'm a nice person, I do all these things. It's foolish ambition. It's to be liked. So we can go the other way. Because some of you go, I don't think about people that much. So you wake up each morning and you think, I'm going to only think about God today. Only God. You go to work. You, pay, you work hard. You get a paycheck. You give 15% to the church. You know what? No, not 15. Let's go 25. We're hitting it hard this week. And you pray and you listen to Christian music as much as possible. And then you get home from work or from school or wherever. And you spend all your time reading the Bible. And you read and you read and you read and say, okay, I've got to change something up. Let's read something else. I'm going to start reading Christian blogs. I'm going to start reading Christian books. And you listen to sermon after sermon and you fall asleep listening to sermons. And you spend all day thinking about God and praying to Him. And you go, sounds like a good life. It's a little monkish in its pursuits, but it seems simple. At least God's in the front of my mind. How could I miss anything then? No mention of other people, though. No relationship that's horizontal. Not one mention of loving other people. People get into that mode of only focusing on knowing about God, but no love for other. Paul tells us if you have all the knowledge in the world and you have no love, you are nothing. John tells us that if you do not, that you will not know God if you do not love. For God is love. 
Listen, these are two extreme examples. These are two ends of a spectrum. Not all of us are going to fit into one in particular. It's pick and choose. Where am I falling in each of these categories? Shades of this are in all of us. Maybe you're too focused on reading and expanding your knowledge so you miss the people in front of you. Maybe you're too focused on helping those around you that you miss knowing more about God. Our hard hearts, our blind eyes, they make us miss the truth that's right in front of us. God is there. He's here for us. We are sinful and cannot understand. We are dirty spots on the ground, as C.S. Lewis calls us. We are disgusting and evil and deserving of all hatred. And the waves are crashing over the bow right now. That wall of water that we thought was going to stick until we got to the other side just broke. The wind is getting stronger and the horses are afraid to run on this dry ground because they don't trust it. How long will this water hold? Will we be able to get across? Will we be able to row our way out of this? Is judgment coming for me? Is death coming for me? The hardness of our heart, our sin, it's our great problem. And it's staring us right in the face. And many of you may already feel it and see it. I understand we're Reformed. We're Presbyterian. We have a high view of sin. Maybe preaching to the choir a little bit here. You understand the seriousness of sin and the hard-heartedness, but you take it so seriously that you're going to miss the second half of this sermon. You're going to miss just how miraculous the man is who's walking across the sea. So let's find it. Let's bring it to our second point. A great Savior who's done miraculous works. So in the midst of our hardened hearts, in the midst of our sin, when the waves are crashing over the bow, when the water looks like it's about to crash down upon us, there is Jesus Christ. There he is. Christ came for us when the waves were crashing down. Christ came for us when it seemed like all was lost because he loved us. That's what we'll see right here. Jesus Christ sent his disciples out. They were working all this time in the boat to get across the sea. They're making terrible headway against the wind. Jesus walks on the water. They see him. They're afraid. They believe him to be a spirit. He calls out to them and he identifies himself. Now the details in this are seriously amazing. See, where the disciples have found identification with the hard heart of Pharaoh, Jesus walk across the water is right there with the Israelites. He's walking safely on dry land across the Red Sea. Exodus 14 is a miraculous chapter. Moses raising his hands, the Red Sea splits in two, the Israelites can walk across dry land to get across for safety. They're finding salvation going across this Red Sea. It's beautiful, it's glorious. Charlton Heston killed it in the movie, so we can all appreciate it. But Jesus doesn't need to raise his hands and split the sea in two. He doesn't need a boat to get across this stormy sea. Jesus can walk across the sea as though it was solid ground. He won't sink. The control of the wind and the sea are in his hand. He can do as he pleases. Jesus' walk on the sea is the walk of true Israel. 
It's the one of true faith. He is the culmination of all that should have been. His path through the sea is the walk of salvation for all those who have the waves crashing over them. Much like the Israelites saw the crossing of the Red Sea as a great salvation from Egypt in the water, Jesus' walk is the better picture of salvation. You can see it here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the walk of the Israelites through the Red Sea was a baptism into Moses. It's a baptism of judgment into life. They were being cleansed to walk forward into the wilderness. They went from death to life through that walk. While Pharaoh and his hard heart were drowned by the sea, they felt the fullness of the judgment. 1 Peter 3 makes a reference to Noah and seven others that went through the waters of judgment, baptized by that, by that water, into new life through the ark. See, Jesus walking across the water, across the sea, as though it was dry ground. We went through the Bible there. Noah, Genesis 9, in a boat, surviving through the harsh seas. The Israelites walking on dry ground because the water could not hold them, split in two. To then Jesus, walking across the sea with no need for dry ground. You understand the beautiful picture that we have right there? Jesus walked across the sea. It was a walk across judgment, across the death that was below him. It was the walk of death for us. It was the walk of death for us. Think about it. Who did he meet while he was walking across that water? Who was struggling in the middle of the sea when the waves were crashing over? He met the hard-hearted disciples. He saved them from their strenuous work, from the dangers of the sea, as though we could row across judgment. No, it takes Jesus Christ to step into this boat, to calm the seas, to bring them over across the sea of death. This is the mark, this is what Mark is referencing in the future. He's showing us that the water and the churning sea, the waves and the wind, they were most assuredly death for us, but not for Jesus Christ. Why? Because of who he is. What did he say? What did he say to the disciples when they first saw him? Verse 49. Take heart, it is I. Or, translate Hebrew to Greek, bring it back to Hebrew. Take heart, I am. You see it now. Jesus Christ puts a name tag on it. He says, here, who am I? Who is the one who's walking across the sea? Who is the one that just fed those as though in the wilderness? The 5,000. Who is the one that will take you from judgment to life? It is God. He was there at the beginning of all things, and he will be there at the end. He was in the burning bush, and he was there with the Israelites on the dry ground. He is God himself walking across the waters. He doesn't need to split them. God himself who feeds the 5,000, he doesn't need to send manna in the morning. No, he will hand it out from his own hand. You can look to the last paragraph of this chapter too. Just read, 
invigorates this idea. His power is so great, he heals just by the corner of his robe. We're not going to spend too much time on it. The end of chapter 6 is really, it's screaming out to all who have ears to hear, God has come. He is here among them. He is personally handing out food better than the time in the wilderness. He is walking across the water better than the time in the Red Sea. And he is healing people better than any prophet or staff or any other object from the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is the height of all that we need. This is for you, Christian, non-Christian alike. Both of you, you, all of us who are so convinced of our sin that we can't breathe, that we feel like we are drowning in the waters. It's for you, a person who thinks they'll never be good enough to earn God's love. The story of Luther, a very famous story of Luther. Before he became the height of Luther that was Luther during the Reformation, when he was a monk, he would go and he would confess and he would confess and he would confess until the priest would get mad at him because he was so convinced about his sin. It was overwhelming him. He needed to confess all the time. He would finish confessing, he would take one step out and then he would remember another thing and he would turn back around. for Luther. It says, God came to save you. You're never good enough, but God is. He's come to make you right before him. He will save you from the waves and from the water. He will take you across the great sea into safe harbor. Beloved, God came to the darkest of places in this sin-filled world, and he walked across water for us. He showed us his love by walking across that water and then walking straight to the cross. By going under the power of death. He took the pain and suffering of this world so that we could be brought near to God. As hard as our hearts may be, as blind as we may be, that we can't find the masking tape, Jesus Christ softens our hearts and opens our eyes. Softens that heart. The prophet Ezekiel, years and years before Christ had even shown up as a baby, gave a prophecy, said, God will give us a new heart and a new spirit. He will remove our heart of stone and he will give us a heart of flesh. That is the promise for all of us who believe. Your heart is not too hard. You may spend all day doing evil things or wishing evil things upon other people, doing good works, but only for your own benefits. You may be doing all of that. You may spend all day thinking you aren't a bad person. You may even spend all day thinking about God. None of those things will bring you salvation. Only the one who could walk across water will do that. So I ask you, do you believe that? Do you trust in that? I said before at the end of the first point, there are a number of us who don't feel like our, straight, our faith is strong enough, who feel as though sin is constantly pushing in on us. We think sin is too great. Over the last chapter, we have seen God do some miraculous things. He's fed the 5,000. He's walked on water. He's healed the sick. He cast out demons. He raised a girl from the dead. He has done greater things than we have ever seen. Forgiving us our sin is another thing he has done. If you believe in Jesus Christ, your sin is forgiven. 
Your sin has been cast away from you. God's love and mercy stretch out before us like an ocean. And we stand strong upon the ocean of God's love and mercy, the rock that is Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, strangers and friends, trust in Jesus Christ to turn your hard heart into a heart of flesh. Let's pray.